Hello and welcome to the Lessons from Lab and Life podcast. I'm your host, Lydia Morrison, and I hope that our podcast offers you some new perspective. Our podcast today focuses on the value of pursuing a good idea, sometimes even despite the recommendations of your mentors. I'm joined by Ron Weiss, professor of biological engineering at MIT and widely acknowledged as one of the founders of synthetic biology. His lab's work focuses on assembly and delivery of genetic circuits, mammalian synthetic transcriptional regulation, microbio-robotic communication, and in vivo biosensors, all of which seems, quite frankly, futuristic and awe-inspiring. Hi, Ron. Thanks so much for being here today. Oh, pleasure to be here. Thank you. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and um, the kind of research that your lab does? Yeah. So I'm actually uh, a computer scientist by training. Uh, I got my uh, PhD from MIT around 2001. And as a computer scientist, I was initially interested in things like uh, digital video and uh, internet and, and searching and things like that. And halfway through my PhD, I decided to switch gears, and rather than programming computers, I wanted to start programming cells. And so I ended up doing a PhD with, in an area that turned out to be synthetic biology. Uh, I then had a faculty appointment at Princeton 2001 to 2009, in which I set up a lab, and we did a whole bunch of work in synthetic biology. And then I came back to MIT 2009, a faculty position there, and also created the MIT Synthetic Biology Center. And so that's basically what occupies most of my time, is doing synthetic biology. Absolutely. Could you tell us how you currently define synthetic biology? Yeah, so so the meaning of synthetic biology is different for every person that you talk to. Mm. I would say for me, uh, synthetic biology really started as this notion of building regulatory devices, characterizing them, and then understanding how to put them together to create systems of interactions. And so the notion of system-level engineering of uh, regulation activities inside the cell, to me, really represents the core of what synthetic biology is. I would say that over the years, the, the definition kind of for many people has expanded. So whether you're including uh, various kinds of other genetic engineering mechanisms, uh, building various kinds of uh, genetically encoded devices to act as sensors, as regulators, as actuators, and also trying to understand how to apply them to different application areas, whether it's metabolic engineering, you know, cancer immunotherapy, uh, vaccination, and so on. And also, in addition to that, people are looking not just at doing it inside cells, but also people are looking at doing synthetic biology in cell-free systems, uh, people have uh, also uh, termed uh, this notion of creating minimal organisms. Some people view that also as synthetic biology. But uh, it's kind of expanded to include m- many of the things, things that we do in biological engineering, like the creating of new biological systems. Hmm. So moving from computer programming to synthetic biology seems like a great leap, especially when synthetic biology was sort of like a new and emerging field. I don't know how well established it you know, was in 2001. Um, can you talk about sort of the decision-making process and what led you to make that uh, change in your career? Yeah, so um, basically I was involved in this uh, project called Amorphous Computing. And in Amorphous Computing, this was a computing-based project. And the idea was can we imagine creating very small computational elements that we can actually embed everywhere, 
like smart dust, smart paint, and so on. So it's kind of cool ideas about how we can make computing really pervasive and, and present everywhere. And this was a project that was led uh, by uh, uh, Jerry Sussman, Hal Abelson, and Tom Knight. So these are essentially were my three PhD advisors. Mm. And I was trying to figure out how would we program millions or billions of little computing elements. Like, you know, they're not going to be uh, highly functional. They're only going to be able to interact with their neighbors. So you're going to have a whole bunch of restrictions on them in terms of their uh, power. And I said, what is similar to that? And the thing that jumped right into my mind was biology. So basically, biology, you have a situation where you have millions or billions of little fragile computing elements that interact in interesting ways, and they lead to very robust behaviors. Mm. So what I wanted to do is basically look at biology and actually specifically look at uh, embryogenesis and try to understand how uh, processes in embryogenesis can lead me to think about programming amorphous computers. And I started doing all kinds of simulations on uh, neural tube formation and somite formation, all these things that kind of look like biology. They weren't exactly biology, so I, wanted, I wasn't trying to exactly recapitulate everything that happens, but trying to do like things that look like biological systems. And I remember some days I was thinking to myself, rather than trying to basically uh, understand biology and use that as a mechanism to program computers, I want to actually flip the arrow and take what I know about computing and actually use that to program biology. So basically do a 180-degree turn. And then I went to my advisors, uh, you know, Tom Knight and Jerry Sussman and Hal Abelson, and they said, awesome, Ron, but I think you should really finish your PhD and what you're doing. You're getting really close. And then after that, when you're a postdoc or something like that, you can work on these things. And that was exactly what I needed to hear to say, okay, I really want to get into synthetic biology. (laughs) Just basically completely go against my advisor's uh, (laughs) recommendation. (laughs) And so what, what I did then is I joined Tom Knight, and he was setting up a wet lab in the artificial intelligence lab at MIT, and I helped him uh, set up a wet lab and, you know, basically worked for him as a graduate student and building all these uh, genetic circuits. So would you consider yourself more an engineer tackling biology problems or a biologist using engineering techniques? Yeah, I would say definitely the former. I, I, I'm kind of an engineer in, you know, in passion. So I, I love to think about uh, how to take things and, and create new behaviors. This is the thing that really gets me excited. So how can I essentially program new behaviors into either existing systems or create systems with new capabilities? And so I'm, you know, certainly curious about, you know, science and biology. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I I, I am fascinated by, you know, how the world works around me uh, and want to learn about that. But then I want to use that information to figure out how I can create things that have never existed before. That's really interesting. Did you find that as a child you were sort of always extra curious and looking to make those um, connections between things that maybe seemed unconnected to the visible eye? Yeah, possibly. So I've, I've always been interested in, in this notion of programming new things. And, mm. you know, even so when I was growing up and computers were not really all that common, and even as like uh, a seven-year-old, I began to uh, program computers and mainframes and wow. and use like punch cards 
in these mainframes. So I, I was just fascinated by the notion of, of, you know, can we program, you know, either computers or, you know, things around us to do new things. So when I think about computer programming, I sort of think about the on-off toggle or maybe elements that might attenuate something, turn something up or something down. But obviously, biology is a whole lot more complex mm. than that. So how, how is it that you're able to sort of take those on-off principles and move yeah. them into the world of biology? And how do you understand sort of the, the breadth of the changes that you're yeah. making when you do modulate yeah. one of those things? So I teach a course about that if oh, you yeah? want to. Yeah, <laughs> it'll just take one semester. And you, um, no, so Sign I, me up. I, okay. <laughs> it's online if you want to do uh, – it's a p- Principles of Synthetic Biology. Oh, cool. So it's, a, it's online on edX, uh, which is a platform, and I co-teach that with Adam Arkin. Awesome. So it's a really fun course, and we have our next uh, iteration, our third iteration of that is going to be this summer. So – Please join us. <laughs> I <laughs> we would can love talk to. all about that beyond a couple of minutes. Um, I would say so. Kind of at a high level, when I started synthetic biology, I was the first thing I was trying to do is do these kind of on-off systems. So basically, do these switches, do these not gates, these and gates, these or gates, and really try to make biology be, you know, able to perform on-off operations. Mm. And and it does. I mean, it's not like this is something that biology have never done before biology in certain situations acts in a kind of a discrete fashion so there are many situations in biology where things are either on or off sure okay and so so as an approach i figured the best place to start is with behavior that i can understand and try to implement that in biological systems while importing and understanding enough about biology and understanding how biology does its on off and using the principles the biology uses to make on-off gate, you know, gates, switches, functions, mm. use that for my own programming purposes. And so I would say, you know, uh, a good portion, my the first maybe five, seven years that I was working in synthetic biology was really focused on engineering the best on-off systems that we could, and then you know, creating more and more complex on-off systems. Uh, but you know, even from day one. You know, I realized that biology does some on-off, but it does a lot of things that are more graded, mm. more temporal, mm-hmm. uh, more noisy, kind of more stochastic, uh, less deterministic. And I, feel, uh, I felt that once we gained enough understanding of how to control the on-off systems, we would begin to explore kind of the more complex things, things that biology does and then begin to try to understand how we can use those for engineering purposes. So, for example, one of the things that uh, we like to use now is noise as, and heterogeneity as engineering tools. So, there actually, we have several systems where they wouldn't work otherwise, but by being able to incorporate specific elements of noise and heterogeneity, we can actually take a non-functional system and make it actually functional in the biological context. Which probably mimics natural biological function uh, more closely than a straight-on-off switch would anyway. Exactly. And so we've been transitioning overall, you know, as a lab to tr- uh, try to incorporate uh, more engineering principles that are based on biological understanding, biological substrate. The, you know, what, what can biology do really well? What kind of challenges are faced by biological systems and be inspired by natural designs on how we uh, we create our own programmable systems. 
So could you offer a couple of examples of sort of everyday applications of biological circuits um, that might be available in the near future? Near future. Okay, I guess we should define what <laughs> near future means for some X number of years where sure. X will remain uh, an unknown variable. Um, Accepted. So I, uh, except, okay. Um, so given that constraint, um, I would say that uh, there's a certain set of things where I would say uh, synthetic biology can offer like practical solutions. Mm. Um, I would say that for industrial biotech, uh, you know, being able to genetically engineer organisms for biomanufacturing is is becoming a reality. And being able to incorporate fairly sophisticated mechanisms for either engineering, com- you know, like uh, small molecules, other other kinds of high value compounds, you know, engineering bacteria or yeast to be able to do that is is becoming real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also engineering mammalian cells to be able to manufacture therapeutic proteins. Uh, I would say that that's also really uh, becoming a reality. Um, so I think for those practical applications, that that I would say is rather near term. Mm. Uh, I think an, an, the next step would be for synthetic biology to be used in therapeutic applications. So being able to create uh, gene therapies that have on-off switches and safety switches to be able to turn on therapeutic genes inside inside a human, mm-hmm. uh, either to fight rare diseases or uh, even to fight you know cancer. So there, there there's a variety of health related or, or or vaccination. So there's a variety of health related applications that I think could really benefit from the control that synthetic biology provides. And so that's gene therapy type of ap- applications and also cell based therapies for for being able to again. Uh, target uh, cancer, being able to target other kinds of uh, rare diseases. So I, I would say that, you know, that's an aspect of synthetic biology that, that's definitely moving forward. And, and you can see almost in the near ter- term that those things are really going to be available and, and can have a real impact in the world. Now, there's a kind of the longer term uh, vision of can synthetic biology be used in other environments in other situations and so that's kind of more vague and unclear but you know for example one of the things people talk about is can you use synthetic biology to create bioluminescent trees mm. right so that those can be used instead of uh, street lights hmm. you know as kind of you know is that like an environmentally friendly way of, of addressing you know uh the the resources that are you know limitations uh in mother earth uh-huh. So you would have um, individual no, no, no. cells within a tree express like a fluorescent protein or something like that? So actually maybe the, even the entire tree would be genetically engineered to express bioluminescent proteins and maybe do it only at night mm. so that, you know, it can save its energy and store up energy. And so it can actually, you know, bioluminesce luminesce even brighter at night. Right, and then offers sort of those advantages that a living tree offers to yeah. a city rather than yeah. um, using electricity and obviously yeah. be a much more sustainable practice, I guess. Exactly. So, so the whole notion of you know, in the environment and sustainability, I think one can think of the kind of fantastic but, but possibly exciting uh, opportunities for synthetic biology. Can we engineer plants that you know, can help the environment and mm-hmm. can do... Uh, environmental remediation 
Can we engineer microbes to be able to do right. that? Like to clean drinking water or something like yeah, that. Yeah, to purify. Actually, I have a colleague of mine who's working on desalination. So actually, uh, engineer plants that can can purify water instead of these really expensive billion dollar uh, processing plants right now. Where plant, I'm you know talking about uh, you know actual construction of a, of a building and, and pipes to do that. Can we can we bi- get biology to do that? I yeah, mean, plants are great. Why not? Why not engineer them to to help us in in further ways? Wow, it seems like there's a sort of a plethora of broad ranging applications for synthetic biology. Um, so if someone's excited about the topic and wants to learn more or thinks that that might be a career for them, how would you suggest that someone sort of start down the, this career trajectory? Are synthetic yeah. biology programs like pretty prevalent across the United States or around the globe? Yeah, so, so I think the education material is improving, but it's not where it should be yet. Mm. Uh, so, for example, you know, there's some beginning uh, uh, examples of textbooks. I would say, you know, look around. Try to find existing online material. There's mm-hmm. actually uh, an increasing amount of online material that's available to help you kind of get into this general area. Um, another really useful thing is try to find an iGEM team. So iGEM is this international genetically engineered machine competition. Mm-hmm. So if you know if you're going to uh, certain high schools or certain colleges, uh, they have iGEM teams, or you can form your own iGEM team in high school in college that happens all the time uh, and and that's a great way to get introduced into synthetic biology uh, iGEM is basically this this really cool uh, you know uh, competition where teams of students just get together learn about synthetic biology and then come up with their own you know crazy fun ideas and then everybody gets together uh, in this iGEM jamboree and present people present their ideas to one another so that that's a really fun kind of way to uh, quickly engage yourself with the rest of the community. You know, and in addition to that, there there are uh, um, existing programs, uh, especially in in various universities uh, around the country, in in other places, Europe, you know, Asia, that Australia, they're really popping up and and are looking to develop uh, a curriculum in synthetic biology. So those are beginning to sprout in, in several places around the world. That's so cool. And um, just so our listeners know, we'll have lots of links in the transcript of this. So they can find resources like your online course um, and more information about iGEM Teams. So one question that I wanted to ask you about, Ron, is that uh, the development of organoids. So I just sat in on your seminar, and you talked about um, programming iPS cells, that would be induced pluripotent stem cells, um, to follow a specific path to a specific lineage to, say, create an organ. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that story? Um, and then I'd love to know if what we're talking about is like a liver in a Petri dish, um, or if we're talking, what we're talking about is sort of, um, you know, like a group of cells that resembles a liver in yeah. a Petri dish. Yeah. So we're trying to figure out exactly the answer to that. But uh, in terms of a liver in a Petri dish, it's, it looks like it actually has structures of an actual liver. Okay. So it's a collection of cells with structures such as vascular networks and uh, bile ducts and things like that that actually resemble what you would find in an actual liver in a human being. Uh, so what we we uh, try to do with what we're calling programmable organoids mm. is this notion of, as you mentioned, the iPS cells, the induced pluripotency stem cells. We take them, 
And so these are actually, uh, one thing that's interesting about them is they're patient-derived. So you can take any individual and take this person's fibroblasts or skin cells and then reprogram, reprogram them to create the iPS cells. And so that's a technology that most labs around the world are you know, essentially able to do. It's not completely trivial, but, but it's certainly something that's accessible to almost everyone. And so the cool thing is you can take a person's you know, skin and then uh, repro- uh, reprogram that to uh, iPS cells. And then we come in and we embed further genetic circuits in there that then allow us to take these iPS cells and then develop them into possibly maybe other organs in your, in your body, ultimately. And so this would be uh, a genetically controlled iPS cell that basically proliferates, so it begins to replicate itself, and then we embed instructions in there, genetically encoded instructions, that now tell that iPS cell how to develop. So for example, we can tell it now to make a liver, Okay. Now, as you can imagine, making a liver is not so trivial. Yeah, it sounds complex. Yes, uh, and it, it's a complex. It's a very complex process. And uh, what we do basically is we provide the right push to the iPS cells. So we don't tell it to. Uh, we don't control directly every single interaction that happens in every individual cell and the interaction between every you know uh, neighboring a set of neighboring cells. Okay. What we do is we provide the right push. So basically, our first push to the iPS cell is tell them become endoderm and mesoderm. Mm. So basically, from the, that initial pluripotent population, we now get a population of cells that are mesoendoderm, and then we can even tell them to some of them become endoderm and some of them become mesoderm. Okay, so we provide the right push, and then the cells have natural pathways that are activated due to our uh, genetic push so that they execute, the ver- execute these very complex programs to create an endoderm layer, to create a mesoderm layer. Now, the, the cool thing about biology is that it can continue to develop. So, for example, what happens in our uh, organoid system is that the endoderm continues to develop towards things like hepatocytes and cholangiocytes. So those are basically the main cell types that are found in the liver. Okay. But the mesoderm also continues to co-develop alongside the hepatocytes and cholangiocytes, and we get vasculature to actually develop uh, from these from the mesoderm layer. And so, as a result of that, we're able to recapitulate embryogenesis such that we, from the initial iPS population, we get basically co-development of all the cell types that are known to exist in an embryonic liver. And so we get this very kind of intense vasculature that's completely embedded in this liver-like structure. That's really interesting. So how how far do you feel like we are from taking something like that and being ready to transplant um, a, a liver that was grown in a lab into a human and yeah. such that it's fully functional? Yeah. We may not be that far from that. Uh, so one of the things that we actually... Uh, are using the liver organs right now, mm-hmm. so this, they actually have an immediate use, is to be able to perform uh, drug screening and mm-hmm. evaluation of drug candidates. So this is, there's a big movement right now in you know, biotech industry and big pharma to be able to use organoids 
to either replace or augment uh, animal uh, trials. So rather than basically exposing you know, a mouse or a rat to a particular drug candidate and trying to understand how that mouse or rat responds and does it have you know, safety, does it have efficacy in a mouse, you know, in an animal model, uh, there's a, a lot of excitement about this notion of being able to create human organoids in a Petri dish and basically exposing them to the drug candidates and asking the question, how does this you know, human-derived liver, human-derived kidney, human-derived you know, brain or something like that, how does that respond to particular drug candidates? So that's, that's going on right now. There's an interest right now in being able to use that. So there, there's an immediate use uh, for programmable organoids. Uh, and beyond that, something I'm obviously very excited about in the future is being able to embed these programmable organoids um, as a therapeutic modality. So if somebody has you know, some kind of liver disease, can we take that person's uh, skin cells, reprogram them to iPS cells, and then uh, grow like an embryonic liver in a Petri dish and then uh, transplant that into, into a human to be able to you know, uh, counteract the, the, the uh, liver disease. So that's something that, that may be possible, you know, I don't want, again, X number of years where X is not a huge number. Yeah, that's pretty amazing technology to think that we would be able to take yeah. that sort of uh, level of programming to create an organ that was of such a high quality that it could yeah. be transplanted into a human. And in terms of the drug screening, does that, <clears throat> would, would the organ level response to drugs be indicative of sort of like overall toxicity of uh, treatment? Yeah, so, so the, the cool thing about being able to have organoids in a Petri dish is that you can uh, have, the abil- you have the ability to expose uh, them to various kind of drugs and, and very precisely see how they rea- respond to it in real time. Right, so you can, you know, so some of the things that we're doing is embedding genetically encoded sensors for a variety of biomarkers that are indicative of, you know, various, uh, you know, pathways and and how they respond in, you know, in in kind of disease-like ways or mm-hmm. in harmful ways. So, for example, one of the experiments that we did was, you know, we asked the question: We have a liver uh, organoid. What kinds of drugs? might have an impact on liver. And so we're like, you're trying to think about this. And they realize, well, an obvious one is actually Tylenol. So acetaminophen actually is toxic to liver at high levels. And so what we did is we uh, embedded into the liver a sensor for a particular microRNA, microRNA 122. And basically, uh, we have a liver then now, if you have abnormal levels of microRNA-122, it fluoresces in red. And we are able to then add Tylenol at various concentrations, and the liver was turning red in real time. That's crazy. Yeah. So, so the notion is that so the, so the, uh, a programmable organoid would be able to tell us in real time of how a drug is affecting it, and which particular pathways are actually being affected. So there's going to be a, a tremendous amount of information that could be provided regarding the biological mechanism of action of these drug candidates. Wow, that seems like a tremendous amount of insight um, to be gleaned from having these 
these resources available really for pharmaceutical companies, um, especially in terms of not only not having to treat the small mammals with these drugs, but also um, in terms of having really a better um, model system for human treatments. Yeah, and and thinking about taking that from individual organoids uh, to possibly, you know, multiple organoids that are interacting because some diseases come about from, a, from interactions with just a single organoid, but a lot of them come about from interactions between kidney and liver or, or pancreas and liver um, or interactions with the immune system. So, this whole, so there's actually uh, colleagues of mine, we're also working on creating this kind of notion of human on a chip where you actually have multiple interacting organoids and really being able to test uh, the impact of, of drugs on, on the entire system, not even just an individual organoid. Wow. Thank you so much for joining us today. I feel like you've really offered both myself and our listeners a glimpse into the future of what synthetic biology can really offer medicine and the, the world at large. And streetlights, right? <laughs> and streetlights, exactly. Yeah. I was trying yeah. to figure out how to yeah. work that in. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much. Great. Thanks for having me. Hopefully you enjoyed listening to this episode of our podcast and that you're as excited about the medical and environmental benefits that synthetic biology can enable as I am. As always, the transcript for this podcast contains links to learn more about Ron's research, online courses, iGEM, and more. Be sure to tune in next time when I'll be joined by some of the 2019 NEB Passion and Science Award winners who are working to bring STEM education and experiences to children and adults around the world.